0: Good morning, my name is Reverend Marisol Caballero, a lot of people call me Reverend Mari for short, and I am one of the assistant ministers here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We welcome you, we welcome you especially if it's your first or second time here. Every week we take a moment to greet the holy in our midst in this room with his, with us here right now by turning to our right and left and saying hello to one another, another because we do contain a spark of the divine within each of us. Please do so. Please join me in the words by which we light our chalice, the symbol of our faith. They're to be found in your orders of service, in the light of truth. And the warmth of love we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. I'm Margaret Borden.
1: Our call to worship this morning is by Erica A. Hewitt, the title, Put Away the Pressures of the World. As we enter into worship, put away the pressures of the world that ask us to perform to take up masks, to put on brave fronts. Silence the voices that ask you to be perfect. This is a community of compassion and welcoming. You do not have to do anything to earn the love contained within these walls. You do not have to be braver, smarter, stronger, better than you are in this moment to belong here with us. You only have to bring the gift of your body, no matter how able, your seeking mind, no matter how busy, your animal heart, no matter how broken. Bring all that you are and all that you love to this hour together. Let us worship together.
0: Each week we gather and we're all so very different. And that's what's so awesome about all of you. We are. We're all so very different. I have come across in talking to you all so many different points of view, so many different beliefs about the here and now, about the afterlife, about politics, about society, all of it. And yet we're here in this room together, and we're one big family, and it's great, and we can do that. But why? What brings us together? Well, so many things, but one that we care enough about to highlight every week is the mission statement that we wrote together as a community. And it took a long time to get there, and you did it, and it's on the wall Join me. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is Feeding the Pit by Barbara Merritt. Part of the advantage of having an elevator being installed two feet from my office door is that I can easily listen in on the construction crew's conversation. It echoes up from two floors below. It rings down the hallway. And in between the drilling, the chain rattling, the pounding, and the sawing comes some helpful theological reflection. This particular conversation occurred between a man who was balanced on a 45-degree ladder over a three-story open elevator pit and the man assisting him. The man on the ladder, who gave me a greater appreciation for having been called to the ministry, asked for four bolts. His colleague said, and I quote, I'll give you five. You'll need one to feed the pit. Now, I can only surmise that this wisdom has been hard won. People who work over great cavities of open air probably learn through experience about gravity. Objects fall. They will fall a great distance when there's nothing to stop them. Ergo, if you're going to suspend yourself over a deep pit, don't assume that everything will go perfectly. Don't assume that a nut or a bolt won't roll away. Assume that additional resources will come in handy. Acknowledge the challenging nature of the assignment. Take a relationship with the pit, where you willingly and gracefully accept that it will occasionally need to be fed. The alternative is simply too costly. To assume that things will go smoothly, that hammers won't drop, that nails won't bend, that parts won't wander, is to place yourself in special danger especially when your workplace is at the top of a ladder suspended over a 50-foot drop. Pits are real. Some places in human existence pose genuine danger. Illness, conflict, and accidents can quickly take everything we hold as precious. Some people advise, don't look down. Pretend that nothing bad could ever happen to you or to anyone you love. This is the ignore the pit school. Another popular opinion is to decry the pit. Isn't it terrible that there are pits in the world? Ain't it awful that I've fallen in? Many allegedly smart people have spent their entire lives arguing about why pits exist and justifying how Offended and angry they are that dangerous places continue to exist. Some become profoundly cynical when they discover how painful a pitfall can be. What's the use, they sigh, with so much destruction and unhappiness in the past and so much possible misery in the future? Why build it all? They become paralyzed with fear. At the moment, I'm drawn to the simple teachings of the elevator man. Feed the pit. Right from the beginning, I should expect to encounter danger, demons, difficulties, and delays on the journey. We need to build a generous contingency fund into every life plan and carry a few extra rations of energy, kindness, and hope in our pockets to offer to an unpredictable and hungry world. Please join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Sweet goodness, spirit of life and of love, God of family and friends of many names, be with us now in this space and in our hearts and in our hands as we work to do all that is good to make this world a place of endless possibilities for justice and kindness and hope to prevail. We pray for all who are in need of comfort, all who are celebrating, and all who mourn. We pray for ourselves and our loved ones. For all that we accomplished in 2014 and all that we did not. For all that we will accomplish in 2015 and all that we will not. We ask these things and many more of the universe, and of our own hands, and all that is good in this sacred silence that I now invite you to join me in for a few moments. Well, it's officially the second week of January, folks. Those of us that make New Year's resolutions are either congratulating ourselves for the hard work of sticking to them this long, forgiving ourselves every few minutes for breaking them, or hating ourselves for ever trying this nonsense, believing we should know better by now. Why try when we knew we are helpless in the face of temptation to fall back into bad habits? I'd be lying if I said that it isn't often that Jim Henson's Fuzzy Muppets didn't point me toward deeper understandings of life all the time, really. Not just often. Listen to enough of my sermons and you'll hear their influence, both directly and indirectly, more often than an adult without children should admit to. But when a seminary friend who has young nieces, posted the video of Janelle Monáe singing The Power of Yet. My series of rapid-fire responses that followed led me to understanding that there was something in this concept for me. And I would guess others as well have something yet still to learn from this concept. At first, I thought it was just a cute little ditty that can teach kids perseverance Then I wondered if the message could have meaning for me as an adult. I agreed that it could, but then became immediately suspicious of it. After all, I'm pretty sure that even with practice, Big Bird will surely slam dunk before I ever will. I mean, I have to stand on a box just to preach. And I'm wearing heels. And though I can add two and two, Elmo's voice will probably have dropped before I ever master calculus. Sports and math have never been my forte. This is okay, I always told myself. For even though I was labeled gifted and talented by first grade and quickly developed a self-identity of a smart kid who didn't have to try as hard to get a good grade, I was satisfied to barely pass math each time and sneak to the back of the line each time it was my turn at the bat in P.E. None of this was important to me, I said. I was more of the creative arts kind of gal. Anyway, the truth was I was humiliated when I was made to go out in the hall with the student teacher and do multiplication drills when everyone else in the class seemed to already know them. And I began to dread PE. When we moved to Odessa from Alpine, Texas, just in time for me to start fourth grade, I remember being in music class. And everyone in this district had been learning simple sight reading for the past several years, something I had never really encountered. When the teacher, not knowing that I was a transfer student, really harshly reprimanded me for not knowing the notes on the scale or how to identify a half note, I started bawling. Why didn't I simply practice math more at home or ask a friend to help me with my kickball technique or let my music teacher know that this was new material for me? Yes, genuine lack of interest Played a big part in the sports and the math, but I was supposed to be good in the arts. That's where my gifts and talents were supposed to be found. Such things were supposed to be easy and effortless for me. So intensely was my self-identity wrapped up in appearing smart and talented and a natural at certain skills that it seemed the more praise and the accolades that I received, the less I was interested in even trying. The bar had been set so high, if I didn't reach it, I'd be a failure. Does this ring a bell for anyone else? In fact, I remember in a moment of sullen teen angst. I remember this so vividly. Having a moment of deep vulnerability with a friend and saying that my greatest fear in life, above even dying, was mediocrity. What drama. So intensely was my self identity wrapped up in appearing smart and talented that. I couldn't even I I couldn't fathom mediocrity. This this is that all too recognizable, that paralyzing fear that comes from knowing that dangerous places exist rather than having a mindset ready to live and learn from the mistakes, to ready to feed the pit. I just finished reading Dr. Carol Dweck's bestseller, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. I named this sermon a couple of months ago, after the Sesame Street song got me thinking, and stumbled across her TED Talk by the same name, The Power of Yet, and then her book, Mindset, in doing my research for this sermon. I highly recommend both. In both, Dweck explains how there are two mindsets, the fixed mindset, and the growth mindset. In her research, she found that students, athletes, coaches, and teachers who held a fixed mindset felt the need to prove themselves over and over again. Many of them, believing that a failed attempt at something new or difficult didn't mean that they needed to practice or try harder, but that they were stupid, incompetent, or lack talent. Many gave up before even trying rather than risk failure. She became convinced though that intelligence and personality are not fixed at all. Think about this. We have IQ scores. This is someone saying that intelligence and personality are not fixed, but are something that can be changed, improved upon, for the sake of a happier and a more successful life. Those with a growth mindset see failure as an opportunity for learning, an exciting new challenge, an adventure. The growth mindset believes that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate through your efforts. This is where the yet comes in. I'm not good at math, yet. I'm not fluent in Chinese, yet. Of course, it's often the case that people are more complex than that. We may have a growth mindset with everything in our lives, believing that a challenge we've yet to master is exhilarating, and practice and hard work is the only secret behind lasting greatness, but we fall into a fixed mindset in the company of our spouse or our families of origin. Parents can do this to us, even as adults. Remembering, we remember and we fear the repeat abandonment or betrayal or other baggage that we've got deep down that tells us that parts of ourselves are unlovable. Dweck says that the fixed mindset is dangerous to leave unaddressed when it comes to interpersonal relationships. She says, as with personal achievement, This belief that success should not need effort robs people of the very thing they need to make their relationship thrive. Effort. It's probably why so many relationships go stale, because people believe that being in love means never having to do anything taxing. Remember that old line from that movie Love Story? Love means never having to say you're sorry. What awful advice. (laughs) That's really bad. Dweck tells the story of a woman who thinks that everything is going well with her boyfriend. He hung the moon. She believes he'll pop the question soon. One night they sit down on the couch to watch a movie and he tells her, I need more space. Her heart sinks. She knew this was too good to be true. Just like every other guy before. What was she doing to turn him off so suddenly? Will she ever find someone who can love her? Then, see, she'd been reading this book, then she thought about her tendency to employ a fixed mindset. And she changed her behavior. She risked asking him What do you mean? And he responded, I mean, I want you to move over a little. I need a little bit more space. (laughs) She thought he was trying to break up when he was, in fact, simply trying to get cozy on the couch and sprawl out a little bit more. Dweck warns us about the messages we tend to give our children regarding success. For example, you learned that so quickly. You are so smart. Look at that drawing! You're the next Picasso! You're so brilliant, you got an A without even studying. These can be heard by kids as, If I don't learn something quickly, I'm not smart. I shouldn't try drawing anything hard, or they'll know I'm not Picasso. And I'd better quit studying, or they won't think I'm brilliant. These messages don't end in childhood. To raise children with a growth mindset, she says, is to encourage hard work, opportunities, to learn something new, um, stick-to-itiveness, and progress rather than perfection. And she sums up the difference between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset as judge and be judged versus learn and help learn. This is an unsettling practice at first. It sounds way too easy as it's written. In fact, it sounds kind of, in practice, it sounds too difficult to even work. Do you hear the fixed mindset at work there? It's, It's where that dismissive phrase, easier said than done, came from, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, that looks good on paper, but How do you just change your mindset? It doesn't seem feasible. But this shift, which will require a lifetime of practice, especially if you grew up like I did with this fixed mindset, it can truly seem overwhelmingly difficult. It requires not only a new behavior, but that we give up a sense of our own ego Uh, our self-identities and all of the good and bad narratives that go along with that and perhaps limit our potential. We can so easily shut, I mean, excuse me, we can't so easily shut off our mind. And for members of marginalized groups who are often the subject of stereotyping, women, the differently abled, LGBTQ folk Um, And people of color, this ability to have our eyes open to reality, it serves us. As we've seen in the news, sometimes understanding this is a matter of life and death. Yes, but it only serves us to an extent, says Dweck's research. With the growth mindset, the teeth are taken out of the oppression and allows folks to be better able to fight back and to take what they can and need even from a threatening environment such as maybe a racist having a racist teacher and and being a student trying to learn something from that person or having a sexist boss and trying to excel in your career despite this so I heard the following poem on Friday, this past Friday, read at a protest performance called Black Poets Speak Out. And some of you may have heard of this hashtag that's become popular online, Black Poets Speak Out. And it's, it's in response to police brutality. And what's happened, it's a three-step action, the organizers are calling it. Step one is to post videos online with that hashtag so it can be followed and tracked and counted. And it's folks' allies reading poetry of resistance by black authors, black poets, or black poets themselves reading the work of other black poets, or black poets themselves reading original work. And then step two are face-to-face poetry readings that are half protest, half performance. And these are being held all over the country. And Austin's was held at Salvage Vanguard Theater on Friday, and I was lucky enough to attend. And the third step is civic engagement, is encouraging everyone who's um, participating online and in these, at these performances to write to their representatives to engage civically in any way they can. So this is a poem that I heard read there. And it spoke to what I'm talking to you about today. It's called, Won't You Celebrate With Me? by Lucille Clifton. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up. Here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I also encourage you to go listen to another inspiring story of resistance along these lines, on NPR's new show, Invisibilia. This past week was the story of Martin Pistorius, a man who developed a rare illness as a child that left him completely paralyzed and mute. From age 12 on, 13 on, something like that, I believe, all of his doctors and caregivers, including his parents, were convinced that he was in a vegetative state breathing but nothing much else, unaware of the world around him for years, they thought. But he wasn't. He was in there. For years, he sat there, unable to communicate, unable to move, to control even a blink, thinking and believing awful thoughts about himself. You're pathetic. No one cares about you. No one will ever show you kindness. The short version of this story is that somehow, over time, in that very lonely world, Martin discovered his own power of yet. His mindset changed, his mindset change allowed him to gain small control over his body somehow. He began to communicate and answer questions with eye movements, and eventually was outfitted with a computer that could speak his thoughts for him. He went to college, he learned to drive, he wrote a book, and now he's happily married today to a woman who fell in love with him, she says, for his honesty his sense of humor, and his dedicated spirit. With people like Martin in mind, while everyone else is floundering on their New Year's resolutions, let's all try to take a cue from the Tao of Sesame Street and remember our very own power of yet. And now I want to invite you to join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice, the symbol of our faith. They're found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. So much is yet to come. So much goodness, so much struggle, so much adventure, so much of who we are not yet. Go in peace to discover the yet in your lives. Amen.
1: This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www austinuu.org